Welcome, my, America. My name is Aramil Frimpong. I come to you live every Monday and Thursday. Monday, I do more relationships show. And Thursday, I do the news and a little bit more political content. So today, I'm going to talk about a hodgepodge of issues, basic confusions, kind of clearing out my desk. And I guess I could start with... I'll start with the writer's strike. All right, so the writer's strike is happening, and I actually think writing should be a job. The writers should get paid. They shouldn't get paid um, in a way that doesn't allow them to make a good living, a regular living. I also think I would never be able to get a job writing in Hollywood because there are too many gatekeepers um, and the whole system's racked. So it's not, it's not exactly the most sympathetic strike for me. And I'm not convinced that the content is particularly great. Right? So I'm pro-union. I just... I also would support an industry that would support me, and I'm not convinced that the, you know, the people who work in writer's room would allow me to do what I do and support me doing what I do. I think I'd have to probably end up doing it all and then um, publishing it on YouTube. By the way, there's a guy, Price, Connor Price. I saw his video, Bankroll. Go ahead and look at it. And I'm thinking, you know, there's a way in which new really good content might be able to be independently not only written but produced because you have a generation of people who kind of grow up editing TikTok videos and so now they have the basics of editing down and, and timing and I just think that they might be close with a little bit more training to be just a generation of people who can edit and so then it just comes, becomes about uh, CGI and, and effects and I, and I think with a really good script you can kind of get around a lot of that so I, uh, I'm open to the idea of democratizing content and allowing more people to do more different kind of better quality drama and, but it takes skills and skills need to kind of become part of the culture so um I'm thinking I'm, I have hope for this new generation of editors so that we'll just, instead of looking at content from cable, we'll have content that's, um, you know, produced on YouTube. Connor Price does hip hop videos. He's good. I thought he was good. And yeah, so I'm a little curious about where the future of independent media comes from, is coming from, because I'm not really convinced that the Hollywood media is particularly great. First of all, if you're a Hollywood media person, and you've been working for 20 years, and you're on Stripe, Stripe, I sure hope that you have a very good pro-union script that you have in the tank that, that you pushed or that you wrote and was, was produced because you are the biggest influencer of culture in America. And if the last 40 years had been producing scripts with low-key pro-union messages... They wouldn't have to go on strike right now. But the problem is a lot of Hollywood writers don't care about anybody else except Hollywood writers. So they only get, um, they get upset when, like, when the ship comes after them. But had they been supporting unions all along and just kind of slowly work in the body, <laughs> work the body of America with respect to getting their pro-union voice out and the, the, uh, showcasing the virtues of organized labor, I think the entire nation would be good. But instead, we got 15 law and orders, and none of them actually take on the police union. So we could have actually, this could have actually happened. This idea that, well, you know, the studios decide the scripts, and the writers couldn't, weren't free to write um, 
subtle pro-union scripts. That's garbage. That's trash. Right? Like, I teach philosophy, and like, everyone comes out of my uh, classes with a working understanding of philosophy and the black struggle. I put it in there. I get it in there. Um, but it turns out that too many writers don't know enough about labor, don't care enough about labor, and then it turns out that the public support for them is not what it could be if they had been writing scripts, very good scripts, about labor and about what um, labor organizing means. Right? You fight where you're at. For a long time, they've had control over that aspect of culture, and they didn't fight while they had control of that aspect of culture. And now, I guess they, maybe they wish they would have, but they didn't. All right, so that's all I'm going to say about the writer's strike, because that's something you're not going to hear every place else. Now, let me talk a little bit about the new N-word. The new N-word is interesting because it's pretty much either you're anti-woke or anti-CRT. Because the N-word emerged as a way to keep black people in their place. You said it, you said it, you said it. There's this famous Lee Atwater quote where he said, well, you know, in the 50s, you could just say N-word, 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 N-word. Then by 68, that becomes unpopular. And then by 70s, you have to kind of like say like, you know, um, you have to deride public goods and... The 80s, it's like welfare queens. That's all different varieties of saying the N-word without actually saying the N-word because you can't do that anymore. It's day class A. It's gauche uh, to say that. But you could um, talk about ending you know, Medicaid. You could talk about uh, programs that would disproportionately affect black people but uh, without and cutting them as a means of, you know, keeping, of showing that, displaying that you can keep black people in their place without actually using the word N-word. And... The problem is a lot of white people also use those, the more abstract you got it, the more white people kind of got caught in the net. And so now they needed a way to say N-word that left poor whites alone. And that's how you, you say anti-CRT or anti-woke. That's the way of saying the N-word, which was just a str uh, strategy to keep black people in their place without actually using the N-word. You say you're anti-woke or anti-CRT. That pretty much means you'll help everybody except the blacks. That, that means you'll help everybody. Except, if you're anti-CRT, that means you'll just help everybody except the blacks. That's how you signal it. I'm down for helping everybody except the blacks. Um, and that's all you signaled when you said the word, the N-word anyway. So same thing, new form. And what's interesting is the more abstract version of that form was popular when you were just cutting public goods for everyone. But now white, poor white people might need those public goods. So you need to go both a little bit more precise but still say you, you, you got to save the poor poor white people you can say that with colorblind policies or pro universal policies that will disproportionately help the black but not as much as they'll help like poor whites and the white people so everybody knows that if you're serious about helping black people everybody who actually thinks about it knows if you're serious about helping black people middle middle like the the middle 80 percent of whites are going to have to take a pretty big haircut if you're serious about in either prestige or monetarily, but mostly prestige. Because even that middle 80% can still think, well, you know, my daughter could marry rich or my rich uncle will, 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 will handle it. Um, or they have a house or whatever. So there's that. The new N-word is anti-woke or anti-CRT because you're pretty much just expressing, I care about everything except... I'll make sure that I'll keep black people in their place. What else we have? 
empiricism. Uh, so empiricism is the idea that uh, sense experience will all tell you the truth. Everything you need to know, you get from sense experience. The problem is it presupposes that you can interpret what you want and like what counts as a success and the method to evaluate it. Once again, we presuppose um, what counts as a success and the method to evaluate it. But what happens if your method to evaluate it is wrong, right? So let's say that you have um, cars, cars, AI cars. AI cars drive fine. It turns out overall deaths go down from car accidents. But now when someone does die from a car accident, we have no one to blame. We think we'll be happy with that, but I don't know. If an AI car kills my kid, I don't care that deaths went down in the aggregate. I care that nobody's at fault for my kid dying and um, I need someone to blame. I need someone whose intentional um, decisions like caused this because it's not a fact of nature. It's not like he died in a hurricane or something. He died by something we produced, but yet I can't ha hold anyone accountable for producing it. That sounds, that's going to be bizarre. That's going to be a hard case. So the problem with AI cars, for example, is going to be uh, liability when someone actually does go down. And you could say, well, you know, in aggregate, we, we ran the data, in aggregate, um, you know, AI cars uh, kill fewer people. But that's not going to matter for the person who, who dies. Right? So that's kind of a subjective quality, character, and uh, interpersonal actions where the person is like us, but not like us. And so that makes the action more meaningful. Um, you even see this in like Marvel villains, for example. The villains are always going to be very similar to the heroes, except uh, slightly different, like a darker path. Right? That's going to be a standard trope because that, that works. That, that heightens the contradiction between the heroes and villains, that they're so similar, but yet so different. Or they're going to be wrestling with similar things you know, the Green Goblin, the Junior, and Spider-Man both wrestled with fatherlessness. And like, so like, it, or dubious parentage and all that stuff. So the, you want the thing you're interacting with, especially meaningful interaction, like the thing you're killing, that's killing you, to be kind of like you, but then different, but also morally accountable. And there's a reason why, even if we kill fewer people with drones than we do with actual soldiers, it's going to be a little bit grosser that we do it with groans because it's just too easy to do with technology. Um, so a little bit of that. Empiricism presumes that you know what you're looking for and you have the right method. But if you don't have the right method and you don't know what you're looking for, then that's fine. By the way, oh, here's a script. I'm going to put the first two, um, the first two topics together. Here's a script idea that's free. A lot of people say like, well, you know, with families, intact families, they have lower um, homelessness rates, higher graduation rates, all of the outcomes are better. But that's an empirical way of judging the virtue of an intact family, right? You could, I, I can imagine a, an empirical study that shows me that it would be better if I plucked poor kids or if I allowed rich people, the top 10%, to go to the top 20% or the bottom 20% and just pluck their children from them. Um, and if I ran the numbers 
and I did the data, find out that it turns out that the kids who are plucked from their birth families and raised by the top 20% have better outcomes. And then, you know, we, we, we run the ideology behind it, and we convince poor people that it's their fault for being poor, and, you know, you do it for the children. So that could be your, your, your plot story. That could be your story. A world, a world where the top 10% can pick among the bottom 20%'s children, and they have the entire ideology, ideological apparatus supporting them in doing so. Um, and we talk about how, you know, it's just best for the children. We really care about children. And it's really the poor parents' fault for being poor. And uh, you can imagine the ideology that, that would support that. And it would be pretty convincing. And then the, the story would be around a family that um, a pair of parents who kidnapped their own kid. I mean, you could do a hook and say, like, well, the kid wants to actually stay with the rich people. It'd be kind of like Annie, except if we found Annie's parents. We found Annie's actual parents, and Annie was like, but, like, Daddy Warbox has all the cool stuff. <laughs> I want to I stay with the rich guy. If I have to pick between two people who love me, my biological parents are the rich guy who loves me. I want to stay with the rich guy who loves me. So that could be the argument. Um, that could be the argument that there could always be other studies if you're just in a pyramid, there could always be other studies and you presuppose what the outcome looks like, what success looks like in the method to evaluate it. There could be other studies that achieve the same end. Now, a happy family isn't just, you know, those outcomes. It's got to have, or family right isn't just those outcomes. It's got to be um, consistent with not abusing parents and taking their kids because you feel like it, even if it's best for the children. All right, so just quick word about empiricism. Or you could have, if, if you could, there's all this data that says, like, well, you know, people are better when they're off, when they're married. But you could just have data who says, that says, well, you know, turns out that the outcomes are better if, if the spouse um, leaves, if the next spouse is making like 20% more money. Right? Everyone's happy. Like the, the spouses are, ha are happier. Um, and you could kind of legitimize gold digging with studies. If you don't know what you're looking for and what counts as success and the right measure for it, you can, you, you'll end up with a bunch, a raft of data that says that um, if you find someone who makes 20% more than your spouse, you might be better off just leaving them. Or if you get a 20% raise and you don't need your spouse anymore, you'd be better off leaving them. According to the data, this makes you more happy. Right? So that would be a problem uh, where empiricism kind of leads you astray. Where empiricism leads you astray. By the way, if you appreciate me doing this, and I do it twice a week, I got a big show planned on Monday. It's gonna, we're going to go in on families. Um, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com. Kick in $5, $15, $50. Go ahead and hit subscribe. Hit like. That all helps me in the algorithm. More people randomly see this, which is Important. Go back and like previous videos, too, because that's always good, too. And um, I was on the Bad Faith podcast with Brianna Joy Gray talking about affirmative action and a host of other things. I like Brianna. She's a class act. Um, it's funny because she admits that she comes from like a pretty solid middle class background and all of her you know, friends' families were, were wealthy. And uh, well, well to do a professional class. And, and even if she wasn't like all of her friends, all of her black friends were. 
and and that kind of colors her perspective. But it's also and so there's a way in which she says like the problem is poverty, not blackness. But she's also single, or you know, not married with kids. And I'm always I'm always a little bit dubious because the white version of Brianna is married and has is at least is happy, but married and with kids. And so unless, I mean, I'm sure some people in the comments are going to say, like, well, what if she doesn't want kids or a husband? But like we, we suggested that she's like dating and looking for a guy. She just can't find one. And, and both her and Ebony Williams, the white versions of them have already, Ebony Williams, the white versions probably already married and divorced the millionaire. Um, but the white version of Brianna, I'm sure all the kids she went to Harvard with and um, are probably, you know, have the family that they wanted in the way that she doesn't. Right? So that's one of the taxes of being black. Um, that's just how it is. And, you know, I, I didn't think of it till after I got off the show, but I, I, we just think about the tax of being black as just coming in terms of uh, economic struggle then it ties us together with everybody else who struggles economically. But it, it comes in the form of all forms of right, including family. You have fewer family options. And insofar as, like, you know, family is a meaningful institution of right, then that, that matters. <laughs> right? Um, so, there's that. So AI empiricism by them strikes the new N-word. I've kind of gone through them all. Uh, I'm going to look at, I'm going to hit the beat because it's late, and then I'm going to look at chat to see if you guys say anything interesting that you need me to respond to, and then I'm going to cut off. So let me hit the beat. To the beat, y'all. Never change the ways for the world or the government If it was the president, then I would state facts You leave it up to me, I paint the White House black And it can feature in your front So I am going to go on counterpoints, breaking points, counterpoints Next week on the 26th To talk families about why the left is bad about families And that's going to be the subject of my Monday show in a powerful way, but I'm going to go in because Emily Jasinski there is like, you know, a conservative pro-family and she says lefts are bad on families. And I'm going to say, yes, liberals are horrible about families because families are anti-liberal, right? It used to be the case that what you did was dictated by your family and your last name. Smiths were Smith, Coopers were Coopers, farmers were farmers, and you didn't get to decide what you wanted to do because it was all determined by your family. And that wasn't good. <laughs> and so um, the realization of freedom included breaking up the power of families. Um, so that now, like, we let it, we let the market determine what you do. And, you know, the idea is that you get really good at something and then the market will reward what you really get good at. And so you don't have to do what your dad did. He did. Instead, you could do what you've developed skills for because of your passion. And then in that way, you contribute in a way that's consistent with your freedom. The problem is now. Now we don't have any um, fetters. We don't. We don't have any defenses against the market, <laughs> right? So when we evacuate family power, that means your family can no longer decide that you're going to be a success. No longer, they're no longer your family. Depending on who you talk to and 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 how 
paranoid you are, your family no longer gets to decide like what gender you get to be because other people will market to you the idea of changing, of swapping, right? So, um, so I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about this on Friday, but on the 26th, I'm going to go on counterpoints and we'll talk about what it means that liberals are anti-family and how you can resuscitate the family as an institution of freedom and the peculiar freedom you can only get when someone's committed to you. And you don't have to worry about being on the market. You don't have to worry about waking up one day and having someone just decide that like they're going to quit you um, and have that stick. It's an ethical love that's, that's not tied to romantic passion. And what the state can do to support that ethical love. Um, so... I, and, and, that, and I'm not talking about just like tightening divorce laws. I'm talking about actual um, enabling people to better be better spouses and take care of that freedom. All right. Take care. I will see you on Monday. Well, I'm going to go into um, the family stuff and later. <laughs>